Did you hear Frank's voice crack? Did you hear Jeanette's voice? You know, sometimes the emotion just comes over us and we just can't help it. It just, we're going into a whole new zone. I've been feeling it myself and holding it back. It's just like, gosh, we're in this moment. We're feeling the things that we feel. We're aware of the connection that is here in this room. And we're letting our guard down. We're letting ourselves feel vulnerable, to be vulnerable, to allow ourselves to be really seen, which is the only way that we can possibly connect. On Good Friday, we talked about the fact that we've got a vulnerable Bible. Did you ever think of it that way? The writers of Scripture so prized vulnerability, lived vulnerability, knew that vulnerability was the price of connection. It's the price of connection. Can't have one without the other. And so they preserved it in our scriptures. Take a look at every biblical character, every single one. They're vulnerable, they're fallible, fallible, they're clueless, you know, and that's the good ones. It's fascinating to me that in every post-resurrection story, the friends of Jesus, the followers of Jesus, the ones who knew him best, don't recognize him at first. Why? Why would they not recognize him? Wouldn't you think? I mean, he told them that he was coming back. And yet, when they see him, they don't recognize him. Did he look different? Was there some sort of cloaking miracle that was taking place here so that he didn't appear as himself? You know, I think there's really a much more human explanation for this. We've been going through the liturgical cycle even though we're not a liturgical church, we've been trying to go through the liturgy all Lent long, but also here in Holy Week, looking at each day of Holy Week and the significance of the scriptural passages that were selected to see that there's a deeper meaning besides just the literal meaning of the story of Jesus last week before the crucifixion and resurrection, but what are the deeper meanings that are really making a difference in our lives right now if we will let them? And so what's the meaning here? What can we glean from the fact that Jesus' closest friends didn't recognize him when he stood before them again? You know, I think most of you have heard this story, but for the two or three of you who haven't, it's so perfect, I just got to tell it again. Mary and I were married about four months, but we've been together for three. So we knew three years. So we knew each other for very, you know, for three years. We knew each other really well. We had gotten married. I had to go and do some shopping, get something at Target one day at lunch, and I'm clueless in Target, trying to look down each aisle to figure out where this thing is that I'm looking for. And I look down one aisle, and there's this woman coming toward me, pushing a shopping cart, and she was just striking. She just stopped me in my tracks, and I had to look at her and say, wow. And it was this long before I realized it was Marion. Okay? So I just want to make it clear, you can't get in trouble for checking out your own wife. Why didn't I recognize her? You know, I've known her for over three years. We're married for crying out loud. Because I didn't expect to see her there. It was totally out of context. There was no way. Now, imagine that Marion had died. Sorry, honey, it's just a hypothetical. (laughs) She died, and we buried her. And then I see her coming up the aisle at Target three days later. 
then how long would it take me to recognize her? How long would it take for my mind to wrap around the fact that she was here? How long would I resist before I finally let go and realize that what my eyes were showing me, what the truth really was that was in front of me, could be accepted? How long would that take for any of us? See, this is what the characters of Scripture, Jesus' closest friends, this is what they're dealing with. This is the reality of it all. In Luke's version of events at verse, at chapter 24, and you can put them up if you want to. I'm not going to read through them. Starting right at verse 1, the women come right at dawn to the tomb, to the graveyard, to anoint Jesus. Why were they doing that? Well, because they were in such a rush to get him into the tomb before sundown on Friday, which was the beginning of Pesach Shabbat. The, the 24 the hour period where no work could take place, they got him into the tomb, but they didn't have time to properly embalm him, not embalm him, but prepare him for, for burial. And so as soon as sundown happened on Saturday, the women went to the dealers and bought everything that they needed and then had to wait for light the following morning so that they could go. And the women go and they find the tomb empty and they're confused by this, of course. And then they see two men in dazzling robes and the question that they ask them is, why are you looking for the living among the dead? I think that is just about the most profound question in all of Scripture. Why are you looking for the living among the dead? Why were they? Well, they buried him. They knew where they buried him, and they expected him to stay put. Reasonable assumption, wouldn't you think? And so they go back to where they were. They go back to the, to the graveyard and he's not there. You know, I used to think that if I got the chance to walk with Jesus, if I got the chance to walk with the Master, that I would have recognized him. Oh, really? Oh, really? <laughs> I spent decades looking for Jesus in books, in church, in scripture, in theology. I was looking in all of these places. And you know what? He wasn't there. It took me just about 10 years to start looking in different places. I started looking where I least expected him to be. Because Jesus wasn't in my ideas. He wasn't in the concepts of theology that I was studying. The moment that we settle on a belief, the moment that belief becomes set in our minds, it stops moving. It becomes static. We all know that life is defined by motion, right? If something is moving, we can generally say that it's alive. And if it's not moving, we think that it's dead. Jesus will always be among the living. God's Spirit is always in motion. The very word in Hebrew, ruach, in Aramaic, rucha, means breath and wind and spirit all at the same time, characterized by constant motion, constant respiration, constant movement of wind. If wind isn't moving, it's not wind. It's defined by motion. God's spirit is defined by motion. God is life and motion. Jesus is motion. He will always be among the living. He is always going to be among the moving. And if we aren't moving with Jesus, if we aren't letting Jesus move, we're not going to find him. As soon as we have a thought about Jesus, it stops. And it's no longer among the living. It is now in the tomb. It is now entombed. And we won't find him there.
In John's version at verse 20, Mary comes and expects to see uh, Jesus right where she left him as well. And she's all about her business. She is on a mission. She is going to anoint him and she's going to get this thing done. And then she sees this man. And she's angry with him because she thinks that maybe he moved the body and didn't tell her where it was. And she's like in the movie where you think about it, where she's speed, someone's speed talking, you know, and they're, they're upset and they're speed talking and talking and talking and talking. Or maybe like one of those cartoon characters where they run off the cliff and they're still running until they realize and then they fall. She's kind of like that. She's just going and going and going. And finally, Jesus almost has to say, Mary, shut up. Mary. He says her name. Miriam. Miriam. And something in that tone, something in the intimacy breaks through to her at that moment. And she blurts out, Rabuni. And then she falls and wants to grasp his feet, which was a Jewish custom. They would grab the feet of their master. Something breaks through and she sees that it is him, that intimate calling of her name that she heard thousands of times finally breaks through all the expectations and everything that she thought was supposed to occur. But as she reaches for him, he says, don't cling. Don't cling to me. Kind of a cold statement. I mean, under the circumstances, wouldn't you at least get a hug? Come on. Don't cling to me. But think about what's going on there. She is trying to reset the relationship the way it was. Trying to cast it back into stone. And he's telling her, it won't work that way. It can't work that way. The relationship is changed. It is changing. It's always changing. Can you let it change? Can you flow with the change? Can you keep looking for me among the living? On the road to Emmaus, we have Jesus' friends. This is at Luke 24. Spend hours with him walking the, the path. They're conversing with him. They're, they're dialoguing with him. They're debating with him over theology and the, and the news events of the day. And then they ask him to dinner all this time, not realizing who it was that they were with. And it's only at dinner when he breaks the bread and he blesses it and he passes it out. All of a sudden, the scales are lifted and they understand who he is. That intimate gesture, again, that they had seen hundreds of times opens them up and lets them realize who they are absolutely with. What Frank was just reading, gone fishing. Peter says, I'm going to go fishing. But it's more than just going fishing, right? What is Peter doing? He's going back to his old way of life. What is he supposed to do? They were following Jesus for years. They had their profession. They had their 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 way of, of, of life He's going back to old routines. He's going back to old patterns. And they go out and they're catching nothing all night long. And then here's this joker on the shore. Hey, you got any fish? How about you throw the net out on the other side of the boat? You know, sometimes something is just absurd enough that it takes you out of yourself. That irrational command, that complete non sequitur, that complete absurdity stops them in the tracks of thinking the way that they were thinking and opens them up to this new reality. Jesus was a master at this, always breaking through in ways that were unexpected. And of course, Peter being Peter throws himself right into the water and starts swimming for it. (laughs) He can't wait for the boat, can't wait to haul in the nets. 
And when they get to the shore, what's Jesus doing? He's down on his heels and he's cooking fish for breakfast. Now, would you expect your master who returned from the grave to be cooking you breakfast? Can we become a people that starts allowing ourselves to see Jesus in ways that we never expected. Because as soon as we think that we've got Jesus figured out, he isn't there anymore. As soon as we think we know where to look for him, we're looking for the living among the dead. Our set beliefs limit our vision. To believe Jesus lives, to believe that he's alive, is going to change nothing in our lives if we keep looking for the living among the dead. Ever try to read Shakespeare? It's hard to read Shakespeare, hard to understand. I remember studying a whole semester on Shakespeare in college, trying to read these poems. And then I got the bright idea to just listen to the play recorded on LP back then. All of a sudden, the thing just came alive. And I understood everything. Everything made sense. The emotions jumped out at me. And I realized Shakespeare isn't meant to be read. Shakespeare is meant to be performed. You know what? The Bible isn't meant to be read. It's meant to be performed and lived out in our lives. Otherwise, it stays flat on the page. It doesn't live in us. And the resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus, is not meant to be remembered, is not meant to be understood. It's meant to be experienced. It's meant to be participated in. We experience the living Jesus when we start looking for him among the living, not among the set beliefs that we have, not among our expectations. Jesus is always moving among the living in each moment of our lives. And when we least expect it, we will find him there, probably cooking us breakfast. And as soon as we decide where he's supposed to be, we're going to miss him. If we're looking for Jesus in the clouds for his return, he's cooking us breakfast and surprising us. He's in every moment, every person, every task, or he's nowhere at all in our lives. We need to look for him in the thickest part of our lives, in the smallest details. Can we find Jesus when we hear our name called? In ways that we've heard a million times, can we hear Jesus in the sound of it, in the connection that that name calling implies with the person who is saying it? Can we see Jesus when we just encounter a familiar gesture, something that just reminds us of of connection and warmth and family and, and maybe food? It doesn't really matter. Can we see Jesus in those familiar gestures? Can we see Jesus when we're shocked by a radically new concept, a radically new idea, a new thought, or an invitation to something that we've never tried before? Can we see Jesus there? At those moments, can we blurt out, Rabuni, can we realize who it is that we're encountering? Can we jump in the water and start swimming for some new shore? that it's going to show us something that we've never seen before. Because every time we encounter God, we will see something we've never seen before. If we have learned to look for the living among the living and not among the set ideas that we think we already believe.
This is a message that I believe is central to these stories here. We want to recognize Jesus when we see him, which means we have to let go of the things we think we know in order to be able to be present to what really is. And just as that breaking of bread was the the gesture, that intimate, familiar gesture that broke the men in Emmaus through to understanding who Jesus was, it's time for us to do the same thing here today. We need to break some bread. We need to have that meal together. And remember, a meal to the Hebrews wasn't just having food. A meal to the Hebrews was an implied contract. It was, it was a treaty. It was a connection point. And it meant something deep. And when Jesus eats, when he prepares breakfast, he is extending that connection to whoever eats with him. And that's us today, by extension. This is what the Eucharist is all about. This is what communion is all about. It's taking into ourselves everything that Jesus is, all of his provision, all of his life force and animation, and making it ours so that we will live and act and react and be animated by the same things that he is and become truly one. So this morning, as we play this next song, as the elements are passed out, resist the temptation to see this as just a remembrance mentally. Resist the temptation to see it as just a ritual that we do every month on special occasions. But it moves into this place where it is something that is fundamental to just the way that we live, the way that we understand life. Let it bring you into a deeper place. And let's celebrate this time of connection with our God.